This morning's reading is Genesis 25. Abraham took another wife, whose name was Ketra. She bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Asherim, Lethumsim, and Lumim. The sons of Midian were Ephath, Ephir, Hanak, Abida, Eldaah. All these were the children of Ketra. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac, eastward to the east country. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years. And he was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, son, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed his, Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Beir, the high Roy. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth. Nabaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, Kedar, Adbiel, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadad, Tema, Jatur, Nafish, and Kadema. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their village and by their encampments, 12 princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to the Lord to inquire, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. 
the first came out red, all his body was like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. While Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once Jacob was cooking stew, Esau come in, came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. So ends today's reading. Good morning. I bring you greetings from Grace Bible just down the road. We are delighted to be in our community together. We pray for you as well in our Sunday services. We're thankful for the friends we have here and most importantly that we share a common faith in Christ and that we are together representing him in this uh, city in our community. So thank you, Matt, especially for letting me be here and address you all. It is a joy to worship with you, to pray with you, to praise our Savior Christ together. But if you would, humor me now. I want to pray again, just as we prepare to come to the Word. So would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for mercy. We are desperate sinners. I feel it in my heart, even this morning, that we are prone to wander. We are weak. We have not lived as we ought, even in the grace that we've received. And pray that you would forgive me. And I pray you would help my brothers and sisters now as we look at your word. Spirit, teach us. Point us to Christ. Show us the greatness of the one who loved us and died for us and gave his life for ours and yet rose from the dead. And now, Lord Jesus, you intercede for us. And so help us. Teach us. Direct us. Humble us in our sin, but show us the greatness of your mercy we would live for you, that we'd walk after you, that together, even our two congregations would show the greatness of Christ in this world. But that starts with seeing what you're doing, seeing the kind of God you are. Show us that now as we turn to your word. Amen. Amen. So if you're not still there, of course, follow along if you would, if you didn't open up uh, in your Bible. Turn with me and let's look at Genesis 25 together. We're going to, of course, there's so much here. It's a long passage, uh, and brave scripture readers come up here and uh, walk through this book that you've been going through. Thankful again to Matt, giving me the opportunity to jump in Genesis. He said, hey, we're in Genesis 25, what you got? And uh, I preached through this last year, and so it's a joy to come back and, one, be reminded of this text and then bring it before you. But I encourage you to follow along in a Bible or on your phone or something like this so you can track with us. 
Because the truth that we find in this text about our God is so key to our spiritual life. Because as you know, as we walk through this world, you see it on the headlines everywhere, that our world is broken. The news headlines with datelines of our own country, just as you keep turning there, just this point is repeated over and over again, our world is broken. Quote to you, This, I'm trying to get the horror out of my mind, said paramedic Mike Shaw. He was one of the first responders to that shooting in Texas at First Baptist Church last November. He goes on, you can't unsee what you already saw. There are certain evil things in the world, I guess, he said. Yes, there are. There are certain evil things in the world. And frankly, with the frequency of mass shootings, of killings, terrorist attacks, not to mention the kind of divisions we see in our own country among so many lines, you just have to wonder, are these evil things, not only are they here, but are they ever increasing? And even if, let's say you block out the news and you don't really track with what's going on out there, the headlines of our own life, I think, tell enough of the story. We ourselves are broken and breaking, aren't we? And I don't mean the highlight reel we post on social media. You know, most of us don't broadcast on Facebook our brokenness, failures, and disappointments. Hey, everybody, I think my hair's thinning. Here we go. Gained another 10 pounds. Curiously, you don't see that kind of thing on social media. I yelled at my kids again. Whether we're dealing with the rather mundane, everyday brokenness of life, you know, difficulty in relationships, aging, or we're dealing with spiritual struggles, apathy, besetting sin, spiritual cowardice, or whether we're dealing with the harsher breaks and sufferings we experience that are more permanent, like the loss of loved ones or illnesses, cancers, major moral failures, severed relationships. The presence of these things in our lives, frankly, can be so challenging to, your, to our faith and so then weakening our hope. But we know this, our God is good. The cross, Christ's sacrifice on our behalf and our place, it proves that beyond all question. And even yet, I think we know this, I'm hearing amens, we sung about this. Even though that's true, yet we struggle and suffer in this world and we still turn and ask, why? Why God? Why me? Why this? Why now? Is this your plan, God? Or maybe just in exasperation, what is your plan? Well, you've been seeing in Genesis his plan unfold and what he's doing. And we're going to see that again here in Genesis 25. We find someone asking this question, why? The why question back to God. And here we get a piece of Scripture's answer to that why question. And in short, it's this. The answer is God has a plan. God has a promise. God has a plan that envelops... Even the brokenness of our world and the brokenness of ourselves to still accomplish his plan, his promise, his purpose, his direction for all good things. That's why we can say those truths to one another like Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. But note this, even the very way that purpose unfolds, brokenness is included in that. 
particularly even our own moral brokenness is a piece of that story. Now, that we're responsible for, of course, and yet it's encapsulated and enveloped in the story of God's plan, His purpose. Because what is God doing as He unfolds His plan, as His promise has been blooming here in the book of Genesis? What are we finding out about our God? Because He's putting His character on display. That's what this is about. And what is He showing us? He's a God of grace. He's a God of mercy. He's highlighting his character for us. And what do we find? He is a merciful, gracious God. And this is our trust. It's the realization of this truth about who our God is that will, one, most fruitfully prompt us toward obedience. If we understand we relate to him by grace, this is going to move us to actually obey more. As we align our will with his. Furthermore, these truths are going to pull in our hearts, going to foster hope in us even when we fail, because we will. We're broken. That's part of this story. But His grace is there. So the big idea as we look at this text, God's determination to work by grace, to have His plan unfold by grace, His determination to work by grace ensures that all His plans and promises will come to pass. Because it's on Him, right? You get that. That's, that's why it's of grace. It's a gift, So with that in mind, let his unstoppable, gracious will strengthen your own will to obey and have hope even when you fail. So let's see this first as we look at the first 18 verses, kind of taking the summary here of Genesis 1 to 18 of chapter 25. What we're going to see is that God accomplishes his will through obedient servants. God accomplishes his will through obedient servants. See that in verses 1 to 18. So as you've been working through Genesis, what we see in this section of Scripture is that it rounds out the end of Abraham's life, you know, the great father of our faith. And even yet, as he prepares to take a bow and and to exit the stage of redemptive history, Abraham obediently trustingly, he's setting up the props for the next scene, for what God is doing, for this unfolding drama of salvation. In other words, Abraham knows, he trusts, and he believes most certainly, God's promises will not die, even though he will. That is, God's promises don't end with Abraham, but the promise and will of God go on until they come to their fullest fulfillment, all as God planned. So I haven't been with you, but it's worth reminding you a bit of the promised story in the book of Genesis, particularly with Abraham. So let me remind you of just the heart of this promise given to him, and so then the whole storyline that's unfolding in the book of Genesis. So Genesis 12, you remember that? The, the narrator or the narrative there spotlights One man, there's a big transition. We go from looking at the whole world from Genesis 1 to 11, and then we spotlight one guy, Abraham, or at that time, Abram. And we're going to then follow him and his whole family through the whole rest of the Old Testament, but of course, namely through Genesis. The whole redemptive story from then on is following Abraham. Now why? Why does it work that way? Why does a global God give such attention to this one man, one family, one people group 
that comes from him. Because it's in the promises even that he gives to Abraham, we see he has global intentions. Remember the great promise from Genesis 12, verse 3, that God gives to Abraham. He says, Abraham, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All the families, all the nations are coming to be blessed through Abraham. So what does this mean? God's very promised plan is coming through him. That is the blessing God has intended. It's got to come through Abraham. Abraham's family then must continue. You know, your hope resides, as you go through the story, your hope resides on Abraham's shoulders in a sense. Of course, we see that it's God's behind it all. But Abraham's family must then continue. And that's been the big challenge working through this text, hasn't it been? Because if Abraham doesn't have a son or children, okay, all of those blessings die with him. And the hope of the blessing then for you and me, for the world, dies too if he's gone. Satan wins. God's plan is over. We're all doomed. Abraham has to have a son who will carry on the promises until they come to pass. So even the hope of our own salvation and reconciliation with God hangs on whether God will keep his promises to Abraham to bless the world through his offspring. So that's the big idea as we come into this text, now Genesis 25, because here he is, Abraham. He's getting ready to exit stage right, take his final lap in the history of redemption. And some loose ends remain before he exits. Some loose ends that could create confusion or conflict about how is God going to fulfill his promises, his promised plan of redemption. And the first problem before him and us is that there's these potential rival sons to this great promised son, Isaac. I trust you heard before about the painful incident with Hagar, you know, Sarah's servant, and the birth of Ishmael, Abraham's son by Hagar, who is a rival not only to Isaac, but to God's very promises too. Again, it has to come by God's promise. Through his way, Ishmael didn't represent that at all. Because they had stepped out of God's plans, God's word, God's promises, trying to conjure up their own fulfillment, their own blessing, not waiting on him, not trusting God. So there's this rival son in Ishmael. But maybe you didn't realize that Abraham took another wife too, this lady Keturah. This other wife who, though, had a lesser status, but she had a few sons of her own. So finally, let's look at the text, verse 1. We're introduced to her here, 25.1. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. Now, we don't know exactly where she came from. She just drops in parachutes here right in this text. And we don't know exactly about when Abraham married her. But it appears, however, that Abraham probably married Keturah while Sarah was still alive. Probably even before he slept with Hagar. Nevertheless, this starts created tension. So much like that tension that arose earlier in the text we saw with Ishmael, this rival son through Hagar. These sons too, by Keturah, they're all raising up questions of potential controversy. Well, who's going to be the heir? Who's going to be the inheritor of these promises and of the fortune of Abraham? 
Well, whatever questions might be in one's mind, Abraham is ready here to squash all controversy definitively. Look there at verse 5. So in view of all these other sons, Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. Again, that's so key, right? Because he was the promised one that came by no conjuring of men, but by the miracle of God. Isaac is the heir of Abraham's things, all his wealth, but then most importantly, right, of this relationship with God, this blessing and favor from God that would spread onto the nations. Everything is passed on to Isaac. And he even takes the further step, Abraham does, uh, of pushing out all of these other sons out of the way, verse 6. But to the sons of his concubines, like Torah, Abraham gave gifts while he was still living. He sent them away from his son, Isaac, eastward to the east country. Now, Abraham, he, he wasn't going to make his sons destitute, sending them away. So he gives them these gifts, you know, so they can, as they leave the home, land on their feet, so to speak. But they must leave the home. They must leave the promised land region. They will not be in rivalry with Isaac, for he is the unquestioned heir appointed by God, given the promises of God. They will not live with him. They will not receive any further inheritance. That's all going to Isaac. They will not receive any part of the land because that was promised by God. It all goes to Isaac, and he stands alone, heir of the Abrahamic covenant, the Abrahamic promises, and the Abrahamic inheritance. Here's the significance. What are we seeing for Abraham then? He's entrusting all of his eggs, so to speak, in God's basket. He's trusting God on his word, that he knows he's trusting God will surely deliver on every aspect of that God has promised. I mean, has not Abraham seen how tenuous life is? Wouldn't it make sense to have some backup sons around? Not when God gives promises. Not when God gives promises contrary-wise. You listen to God. He's the one behind this. This isn't up to your, your ingenuity, your planning, your conniving, your working. It's about God and His gracious working. So he was aligning his life, Abraham was, in every aspect, even in view of his death, he was judging what's true by the promise of God and walked in it. He was an obedient servant, submitting to God's will and plan. So as I was reading this, I have to ask the question to you, because I had to ask myself the same one. Whose will and plans are your ambitions and desires for yourself or maybe your children? Where are those coming from? Where's your agenda coming from? Whose plans and will are your desires aligned with? Is it your own? Trust in God's plan means taking the marching orders from Him, the priorities He gives us in His Word. Understand, the will of God is revealed for you in this book. Here's how God speaks to us. This is God's will for you, His counsel to you, through the commands and truths of Scripture. God will accomplish His will in your life through obedience to His Word. This is how He works. Let us not neglect the clear, given instruction of His Word 
as we're off seeking some secret will, when again, all the while, he's at least given us this very clear. This is how God will work through and in your life. Read and obey. That's how he works. And we see that it's set up here, even as Abraham now passes on, and he moves on, but his, God's blessing and plan still lives on, moves on effectively to Isaac. So look in verse 7, we see this summary statement about Abraham's life in view of his death. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man full of years and was gathered to his people. Now just notice, as an aside, even Abraham, the father of faith, dies. He didn't escape death either. The effects of sin and its consequences are inescapable. Only by faith, and even then we only escape the, the worst effects of sin's consequences in Christ. If we are in him, the longest lasting effects... And yet, even in the midst of a thorn-filled, cursed earth and world, we must walk in it. But even as we walk in it, like Abraham did, we see God's blessing resided over Abraham's life. He lived a long life, 175 years. The text notes he died in a good old age, an old man full of years. So he needs to be buried, right? And Abraham's burial, this rival resurfaces. Remember Ishmael. He's perhaps the greatest threat to Isaac's claim as the heir. Why? Why chiefly? He seems to be the other main son, even born before Isaac. But here's how it unfolds. Verse 9, Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him. In the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites, there Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. Abraham's body is laid to rest next to Sarah, that first and primary wife. And it's laid to rest in that smallest sliver of land, the only possession of the whole promised land that Abraham owns, a burial place to put his wife and now his own body. But here is Ishmael now back on the scene, though he'd been sent away, of course. And so whatever worries and concern again, sudden, Ishmael's sudden appearance creates, you know, there's this question, is, is he going to try now that Abraham's out of the way? Is he going to try and take from Isaac this inheritance? The text makes quite clear that the promise and all the inheritance does effectively pass on to Isaac, the chosen heir. Look there at verse 11. And after the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son. So the blessing carries on. The promises carry on. And they're going right down the promised line, not the line of man's convention and man's efforts. So in the same way that Abraham was favored by God, given these promises, the same thing is true about Isaac. You know, we read about Abraham being blessed in summary. If you look just chapter back, Genesis 24, verse 1, And the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And now God has passed this blessing on to his son, 
Isaac, God, okay, God, the Almighty, is blessing Isaac. Whatever anxieties, uneasiness, questions Ishmael's presence may have aroused, there remains no threat to God's intention and God's promises coming to pass. His blessing definitely, affirmatively, passes to Isaac. But that need not mean, again, you see something of the character of our God, that need not mean he dismisses Ishmael so entirely as if to neglect him. Because as we see here, the, the Genesis text is now going to wrap up Ishmael and his story. And we encounter language, though, as it does, that we saw in Genesis before. Because God's filling for promise. He's fulfilling promises even for Ishmael, even though he's not the chosen one or the favored one. We encounter language in the text that you would have seen before, like in Genesis 16, when Hagar is spoken to by God from heaven. God gives her this assurances of hope and blessing for her son Ishmael. And first of all, here's what the Lord promises, Genesis 16, verse 10. I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for a multitude. So even though he's not the chosen one, that is Ishmael, God is saying, I'm going to multiply him in language of creation blessing, of the ultimate favor of God, mimicking this. And what do we discover in Ishmael's genealogy of chapter 25? What do we see there as we scan the text or as we heard? Ishmael has 12 sons who are princes, who rule their own tribes and villages. Again, the promises that God gave earlier, Genesis 16, verse 12, the Lord promised that this as well. He said, he, Ishmael, shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. And isn't that precisely what we see now happening, God bringing to pass? He keeps his word. Genesis 25, verse 18, again, speaking of Ishmael, then it was a promise in Genesis 16. Now it's being fulfilled in Genesis 25. He settled over against all his kinsmen. That's intentional, isn't it? That's not an accident. God keeps his good word, all of it. His will must be, will be done. Even if Ishmael's not the chosen one. And so then not the direct beneficiary of these Abrahamic promises, these promises of blessing, that need not mean God has then forsaken him either in this sense. God made promises to Ishmael too. And even those promises, like all God's promises, they will not fall. They will not pass away until every aspect has been fulfilled. And even this, there's still hope that's out there. Because God has promised blessing to all nations, all of them, even those that would descend from Ishmael for any that would turn and believe in those promises, that would trust that Abraham, Isaac, and all of his family, that these are the favored ones, that I can be blessed by God in them. Of course, ultimately, we're looking to that ultimate descendant in Christ Jesus. There's still hope for them to be, in that sense, part of God's plan because God will keep his word. What do we see as we see these stories of Abraham and Ishmael wrapping up? There is hope with a God like this who keeps his word. So he accomplishes his will through obedient servants. 
But God also accomplishes his will through difficulties, through troubles, and through sin. See that in Genesis 20, verses 29 through 34 of chapter 25. So look there. So God's going to accomplish his plan through the likes of Abraham, you know, setting up the props to pass on the blessing. But at the same time, God is sure to bring about his will and his plan in such a way to surprise us. In such a way that no man, no agent, no other could possibly take credit for what God's doing. See, God even designs to have his will and plan come about through difficulties, sins, and troubles. And he does so for this very reason, or two reasons. Number one. That when you see him do those things through impossible circumstances, number one, what are you going to see? God's the one in control. God's the one in control. I'm not behind the wheel, so to speak. Number two, what are you seeing as God works through difficulty, sins, and troubles? God is overflowing with grace. He is a gracious God. For all of this, every bit of it, he is to then receive all the praise, all the glory, all the credit, because it's all a gift from him. It's not about us. Because as we see, as we turn now in verses 19 and following to the end of the chapter, the stage has been set, the new players for the new scene in Genesis have taken their places, and yet we have like a repeat of where we've been before. Just almost identically the same problem we saw with Abraham. Difficulties arise. And these difficulties, by no accident, right, they are difficulties of such a nature that no earthly or human capabilities could ever remedy this. Namely, what are we dealing with? The promised one's barrenness. Again, you run into another barren woman. This time Rebecca. Just like with Sarah. And you get, I trust, what a problem this is as you work through the story. Because if there is not a son, the promise dies. The promise ends. Hope is lost. And not only for Abraham's family, but for the world. For all of us. But there's hope in a God like this, and a God of grace in his plan. And so we see it as Isaac prays. Look there at the text, verse 21. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. So here's something different from the last time. Isaac apparently learned from his parents' mistakes. Do you see that? Instead of trying to go around God's plan, right, go through some other womb, depending on, again, human ingenuity, capability, works, Isaac looked to the Lord. He cast himself before him. He was depending on God and his plan and his ways to work in his time. Despite how difficult things felt and looked for him and his wife, obviously. Because as we keep reading in this text, understand it becomes evident that this was not some one-off request from Isaac. You know, prompted maybe by a couple months of infertility. Look ahead there to verse 26. We see that when his sons are born, Isaac is then 60 years old. We know from verse 20, we read that he was only 40 years old when he married Rebekah. That means for an uneasy, 
tear-filled, disappointing 20 years, Isaac was laboring in prayer on behalf of his barren wife. That's a long time to pray to not see the promise happen. And yet he waited, simply waiting on God to do the good thing he'd promised to do. In this way, Isaac's will and desires, they were aligned with God's because he was waiting on God's ways, not trying to make his own. Patiently turning to the Lord through tears and long prayer. But this is a condensed story, so we, we find happy day right there in verse 21. The promise is carried on, the prayer is heard. And the prayer is granted. Verse 21, Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer. And Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Now, but things take a twist. You know, you ever get what you ask for? You know, it seems like God's goodwill for you. It's what you wanted. And then when it finally comes, things don't go quite right. You discover that there's pain, there's difficulty in this road too. And we see that here with these struggling twins, that even God's plan and elections behind it all. Verse 22, the children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? Do you hear the why question there? And so she went to inquire of the Lord. So where does she go? She goes to the Lord. She knows this is from him. She knew this pregnancy was a part of God's plan. She even knew God's promises and her role in it. To bear salvation in that sense literally, right? And so despite her long barrenness, she expected by the Lord's word to have children one day. And here it is. But she didn't expect the pregnancy to go like this. The struggling felt within her, it pained her, surprised her. As if to say, I didn't think God's good gifts could hurt so much. But in faith, she turns to the one in charge, to the one with the plan, asking to know why. So from her lips comes that most familiar question to anyone walking through trials. Why? Why me? Why is this happening? Why are things happening like this? And the answer she receives is one that, yes, gives, of course, specific insight into her situation. But this, too, underscores the principle at hand that we can glean from when we're asking why. Why me? Why is it like this? Because all that follows in these men's lives... In the initial outworkings of these young men's lives, even with all this struggle, this is God's plan. A perfect plan that even accounts for, designs into it, challenges, troubles. A perfect plan, as you're going to follow, Lord willing, with Jacob, that incorporates the sins and evil intents, even of the promised ones. Again, a perfect plan that doesn't hinge on whether the players or the actors will do good enough or well enough. But it's a perfect plan that lifts high 
who our God is. He's a God of grace. For starters, just like God foretold, these two brothers, they stand against one another divided. And there's different in their personalities and in their character and in their appearance as night and day. We see that here as they're born. You can see they're just divided in their very nature. One is hairy, almost like an animal, even from birth. Of course, it's Esau. And then the other one is already getting after him, grabbing his heel. It's Jacob, where his name comes from. And then they're born and then they grow up and the differences between them just become even more stark. Verse 27. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter and man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. You know, the, even the most cursory look at this just gives the impression that Esau is, you know, a man's man, right, in today's vernacular. Hunter type, strong, burly, with the pickup, got the big beard. Okay, anyway, the camo, the shotgun ready. And then Jacob is some sissified mama's boy hanging out in the kitchen. Now, maybe that's going a little too far. But the general stereotypes about these characters hold. They're very different. These guys are polar opposites of one another. And yet we discover that even through those differences, division, and conflict, God is working out his promises as planned even with the difficulties and division therein. And he's able to do so even as sinful desires try and get in the way of what's involved. Because even as this final episode here in Genesis 25 opens, verses 29 and following, we find each son engaged in his preferred realm and activity and God's plan still going forward. So verse 29 Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. So Jacob had been at home cooking like he was apt to do, filling the home with delicious smelling stew. And Esau was exhausted. He exhausted himself when he was out hunting and apparently had no success. He's overcome by hunger and his appetites as he was prone to be. And so he demands something of this stew. Now Jacob frames a counteroffer. Verse 31, sell me your birthright Now, now I want your birthright. Even then he goes on, swear to me now in verse 33. Obviously, this is no fair exchange. He's not leaning on, well, you remember what God had promised? No, no, no. He's about getting things his own way. Just like his grandfather. Esau was asking for a simple, though tasty meal in exchange. Jacob demanded from Esau his future inheritance. Jacob ruthlessly capitalizes on his brother's physical and personal weaknesses. He's not out for the good of his brother to care for him, only how he might take advantage of him to benefit himself. To do so in a way that allows Jacob to displace Esau as the chief son, the firstborn. Jacob is either forgotten, not heard, and not cared, more likely, about what God's promises were, He goes after his father's wealth and inheritance his own way. And even through this, what do we see taking place? God's promises coming to pass. God's prophecy that the older would serve the younger, it starts to take shape now. Even through this injustice upon his brother. What is this all about? Why do things unfold this way? In a way, we see it does nothing to commend Jacob's character to us. 
And as you keep going through Genesis, he, he's not exactly a high, highlight reel of righteousness either. Selfishness, lack of compassion, manipulations. That's what he's about. And yet, even through it, God is working to accomplish his will. How can that be? How can that be? Why do things happen that way? And why this way? Why does our God have to do it by the way of surprise this way? Because then it can only be explained as his plan. And it can only be done one way. That's his way. And what defines his way? Grace. It's a gift. That's the only hope here. This is how God's works. This is how God works. As he brings all his promises to pass, they come to pass by grace, undeserved favor. And to demonstrate this for you more pronouncedly, let's look at the Apostle Paul, give a short exposition, explanation of this account. Turn with me, if you would, to Romans chapter 9. So we're in Genesis. We're going to go way right in our Bible to the letter to the Romans the ninth chapter. And Paul's going to reference this account we just saw from Genesis. Paul's making here an extended argument about how we should think about God's electing love, God's choices, his sovereign choice to have some of his people be his, that some would receive his promises. Why and how would God do it the way he does? There's plenty here, but let's look at verse 10. And not only so, Paul says, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So from verse 10, though these boys were twins and with the same father and mother, God had clearly in his mind made a distinction between them, choosing one over the other, namely Jacob over Esau. Again, verse 12, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now the crux of the matter is we see there's a distinction. We see there's one error, and it's not according to convention. Why does God's plan work this way? Why, on what basis did God choose Jacob over against Esau? This is the question Paul is here to answer. Look at verse 11 again. Though they were not yet born and had did nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. So I tried to highlight it there, but did you see that? In order that. This is the answer. This is the purpose statement. Why do you do what you do, O oh God? What were you thinking here? What does he say? That his purpose and plan of election might continue. So that God's choice, God's will would be established by him and him alone. That is, his will, his plan will in no way, do you hear that? No way be contingent upon or decided ultimately by the ways and deeds and desires of men. It's not you, it's him. 
And as Paul explains it again, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works. Because what is that? It's coming by grace. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. Because it's a gift. God operated in this way with Jacob and Esau to demonstrate for all of history that his salvation plan, it's all his. It's all from him. It all depends upon him. It entirely succeeds because he chooses that it would, just as he pleased. Which again causes us to revisit those same questions. Why? Is any of that really fair? Look at verse 14 of Romans 9. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. But of course, though Paul says, no, by no means. We, we all understand where this objection arises. How can it be fair to have one chosen over the other when they've, neither of them have done anything? No action, no moral thing, no actual or potential thing even distinguished them. How can that not be injustice or bias? Well, listen to Paul, verse 15. For, here's his explanation, he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And what's the point of that? Verse 16. So it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. There's something here that's so crucial as we consider fairness with God. So hold with me here. What must the implication necessarily be when God says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion? Who needs mercy? The guilty. Not the innocent. Not righteous people. Not morally upstanding people. Who needs mercy? Sinners do. Rebels do. The ungodly do. And back to our Genesis text, you're going to see Jacob is going to fit that to a T. To receive God's mercy, to receive his unearned favor, is to receive his compassion. It's not to receive fairness from God. It's not to receive his justice, except in Jesus. In a sense, if it's just you, you don't want justice with God. That only means hell. For any sinner to receive anything besides wrath is nothing but God's sheer love, his grace, his overflowing mercy that just abundantly runs over to any that he chooses because that's how God works. This is the large part about what this lesson between Jacob and Esau is here to teach us. His mercy and his plan, they're his. And as his plan for history unfolds, it unfolds in such a way that reveals the heart of our God, what he's like. And what do we discover about him most gloriously? He is a merciful and gracious God. But how can God do that? How can God forgive the likes of Jacob and Abraham and adulterous David and crass Samson and recanting Peter and the cowardly John Mark? How can God do that? Because it's his plan and his purpose to show grace through Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. That's his plan. 
That's how he's going to be able to bring his blessing to all the nations. Because he's a God of grace. God purposed, God ordained that the story he is writing all of history is going to sing that note of grace. A story that can only be explained and only be answered by the grace found in Jesus' death for sinners like you and me and his resurrection. So what are we to do with this? How are we supposed to think about this? If you have failed him in your Christian walk, or when you fail him, to whatever degree that is, with a God like this, we have reason for hope and encouragement. His initial purpose to choose you in Christ, to set his love on you, that was not something earned by you. His choosing did not rest on you because he thought about what you're going to do in this life and how great it's going to be if you're on his side. He chose you in Christ because he chose you. He chose you in Christ because he's merciful. He chose you in Christ because he's gracious. He chose you in Christ, if you're in him, to magnify that he is God of mercy. That's why. So take courage, doubting sister or struggling brother. Christ will not leave you or forsake you. He mercifully chose you freely chose to set his love on you before the foundation of the world and he has sealed that love upon you in the death of his son and the giving of his spirit. Like so many who've walked before you, whether it was doubting Thomas or denying Peter or adulterous David, seize then in your sin, seize those promises he's made to you in the gospel that he is gracious to sinners and never look away from those. Because that's the word he is proving to us here. Struggling sister, wandering brother, lift up your head, confess your sin, and because of the gospel, walk in obedient faith. It's not too light. Second, overall, we understand that despite how much God is graciously and sovereignly in control of all this, his principal way of working, though, is to work through obedient servants like Abraham. As we saw in that first part of chapter 25. In other words, his sheer sovereign grace is no excuse for laziness. Nor is it an excuse for sinful indulgence. Rather, it's a great encouragement to obedience. Where is one area of your life that's more characterized by disobedience by apathy, wrong goals, wrong priorities. How might you now change holding these truths in mind about the unstoppable plan of God to show grace to the nations? How might that reorient you? How might that truth alter your plans, maybe your job, your ambitions, your speech, your parenting, your work? How might you more faithfully align your life in trusting obedience to his revealed call because he is a God of grace working through you. May we together grow in that, in Christ-likeness. Let's pray for this. Father, we ask for mercy and we rejoice that you are gracious. We have no hope in ourselves 
And we take courage this morning as we see that you are a God of grace. We have not attained to this of ourselves. We have not walked in it by our own power. We have come upon it because you're a gracious God. And so because you are merciful, because you are gracious, because you intend to magnify your son by the people you've bought, I pray for my brothers and sisters here, cause us to walk in obedience. Change our heart and desires. Melt the hard-heartedness, hard-heartedness by your mercy so that maybe we walk in obedience and faith that Jesus Christ, our great Savior, would receive all the glory he is worthy of. It's for this we pray. Amen. Church, we thank the Lord for the preaching of the word.